Psalm 119. This morning we come to the 20th section of this great psalm. Verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Salvation is far from the wicked. We're thinking this morning especially about the wicked. In this resh room, the the Hebrew letter resh, we are especially thinking about the ungodly who are on David's mind. The word that describes that letter, the word resh, it has several meanings. And they are linked in ways. It is said, first of all, to mean head. Originally the letter, when it was written, is said to have looked like a man's head. The head is the head of a man in the letter. The head is the place where the mind is seated. So we're thinking about the head of a man. And then secondly, it can mean poor. Not just humility, there's being a poor in spirit, but this is a a poverty, a having nothing, not just a poorer than others, but a pauper, completely poor, having absolutely nothing, absolutely poor. And then thirdly, it can have the meaning of wicked, an evil person. Salvation is far from the wicked. And he uses this, this word, resh. And this morning, that's where I want to put the emphasis, on the wicked. We're talking about the wicked. The wicked who are themselves under a wicked head whose minds have been blinded by a wicked head, by the God of this world, by Satan, by the devil. So men are wicked, and if we put these three shades of meaning together, we get a picture of humanity. We get a picture of sinners. We see what has become of man's head, man's mind. We know from Genesis that man's mind was blinded. That there came a head into the garden, Satan. You remember God said, I'm going to bruise Satan's head. There came a head into the garden, and that head blinded mankind. That head made mankind to be wicked. To become depraved and to become sinful. Man's mind being deceived came under the power and dominion of Satan. And Satan is the head, the prince of this world. And he has power over men's minds to blind them and deceive them and cause them to continue in wickedness. And that wicked Satan robbed men. Robbed men of righteousness. Robbed men of likeness to God. Rob men so as to make them paupers, poor sinners, in immense debt 
to Almighty God, having nothing of grace, having nothing of righteousness, men then are blinded by the God of this world. And of course, the devil himself is the wicked one, isn't he? The wicked one, the wicked head. And his seed is like him, wicked like himself. What does the Bible say? Cain, who was of that wicked one. Cain is the seed of the serpent. He's wicked like his father, the devil. And it's the true of all sinners. They're off the wicked one. And they walk according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The apostle John, he says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. It lies in the grip of the wicked one. It's under Satan's head. That's the kind of thing that we have to keep in mind whenever we work our way through this section this morning. That's the theme that unifies all the verses that are found in this section. Now notice how David starts off. He starts off reminding the Lord about his affliction and imploring the Lord for deliverance. Verse 153, Consider mine affliction. And deliver me. Now we have to ask, what is afflicting David? What is it that is annoying him? What is it that is hurting him as he comes into this room? Something that is so hard for him that he needs the Lord to deliver him out of it. It clearly is not sickness. It's not a flu or a virus or a cancer or something like that. Now, there is no doubt that they are all afflictions. But that's not the affliction that David is speaking about in this room. And that's not the affliction that he's wanting delivered from. It's not the affliction of sickness. Rather, it is the affliction that he is suffering at the hands of the wicked. He's being hurt. By the ungodly. And he's been hurt by the wicked one. By the devil himself. So he is being persecuted. That's the affliction he's suffering. In the context in this room. He faces a wicked foe. And in this room he comes to tell the Lord about it. And to pray for deliverance from it. So We're not talking about the trial of sickness or other woes that we might suffer in divine providence, such as poverty or losses, but we're talking about hurt by the devil and by his wicked seed. And that's why he says, verse 154, plead my cause and deliver me. That tells us it's not sickness. He needs someone to stand up for him. He needs someone to plead for him. He needs someone to be an advocate for him, a defense for him. 
He's needing someone to plead his cause. And he, who's, who's like the Lord can plead your cause? The advocate. So this is more than deliverance from sickness. This is looking for someone, namely the Lord, to stand up for him in his weakness. In the assault that he is experiencing. This is the language of one who has an enemy. And David often uses this language in the Psalms. You can study it through yourself. Psalm 35. Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. You see, it's nothing about sickness. And yes, we do need an advocate for all things. But especially he uses this word whenever he has the enemy reproaching his soul. And he says, Lord, plead for me against those that strive with me. Then Psalm 43 Plead my cause, O God, against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. And there again you see the context in which he uses this word, plead for me. It's an ungodly nation that's against me. It's a wicked and unjust and a deceitful person that is against me. And I need you to plead for me, Lord. And that's the way the people of God have to talk. Satan's against us. He's the accuser of the brethren. He resists us. And we need an advocate. We need one to plead for us. And this is the context in which David uses us. The wicked and the wicked one is against him, hurting him, uh, reproaching him. And he says, Lord, just, just plead for me. Be my advocate. You remember how David spoke to Saul. Uh, the Saul was persecuting his soul all the time. And there was a time whenever David faced Saul and said to Saul, The Lord judge between you and me. And see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. That's how he talked to the Saul. To Saul. He says, Saul, I'm looking to the Lord to please my cause. I'm not going to slay you. I'm not going to use the sword against you. Vengeance is the Lord, but I'm just going to look to the Lord to please my cause against you and to, to deliver me out of your hand. That's always the context in which he uses this word plead. So he has been molested. He's been attacked by the wicked one. And he's asking the Lord to plead his cause. So we have to remember, children of God, that we are in a world of wickedness. And it's a world of woe because it's a world of persecution against Christians. We battle against not just the flesh, but against the devil, against the wicked one. And against all who are in his tool chest. That's what we have to battle against. Didn't the Lord Jesus tell us, in the world ye shall have tribulation? And he's not just talking about the ordinary woes of tribulation, sickness that everybody else suffers as well. He's talking about the tribulation that the wicked one brings. That the wicked bring. That's the kind of tribulation that he's talking about. Not the tribulation of God going to throw the divine wrath and judgments on the world. Yeah, that is tribulation. But whenever the Lord uses that word tribulation, he's talking about going into the fiery furnace with Satan, with the wicked one and with the persecutors. Then shall be great tribulation, he says. They'll cast you out of the synagogues and you'll be brought before kings and you'll be persecuted. And so that's the kind of woe 
that David is suffering in the context. This tribulation comes from the wicked one and the wicked who are under the wicked one. Uh, This persecution you will see is for righteousness' sake because what, what does he say there? It's for belonging to the Lord. Verse 153, Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Now why does he say that? Is he using that as an argument why the Lord should deliver him? Yes, probably. But he's also saying, that's why I'm afflicted. Because I'm a lawkeeper. Because I believe in righteousness. Because I believe the Lord is just and righteous. And that the people of God have to be just and righteous. So he's suffering for keeping the law. He's suffering for his righteousness. He's suffering because he belongs to the Lord. He's suffering because he loves the Lord and he believes God's word. And he proclaims God's word. He's suffering because he is light in a dark world of wickedness. That's why he's suffering. He's suffering because he is salt in a corrupt world. That's why the people of God suffer at the hands of the devil and at the hands of the devil's seed for righteousness' sake. So it's suffering at the hands of the wicked for the Lord's sake. And what is more, even though he suffers, he refuses to forget God's law. You see, the wicked one and the wicked, they're not going to drive him from doing what's right. They're not going to drive him from keeping God's word, from following God's word. David knows he's on the side of the right, and he knows that he suffers for it, and he knows that he's not going to change. He's not going to turn. Because really that's what the devil wants, isn't it? Not just so much just to hurt God's people. He wants to ruin them. To turn them from the ways of righteousness. To get them off the straight and narrow. To destroy their testimony. And so he aims that we sin. And that we break God's law. And and that is why the, the woes and the tribulations of the wicked are so fierce. Because we are tempted to do wrong when we go through it. We are tempted to escape it. We are tempted to hide our light under a bushel and all the rest because of it. So it is a sore temptation to God's people having to face the trials of the wicked one. We give thanks to God that David is suffering for righteousness sake. I mean, he could hardly ask the Lord to plead for him if he was doing wrong. He could hardly ask the Lord to plead his cause if it was a wicked cause. Uh, David is suffering for righteousness sake. As we read this morning in Peter, what glory is it If you be buffeted for your faults, if you're wrong and sinful and mistaken about the matter and you're buffeted for it and you suffer it, what what glory is there in that? But if you do well and you're doing right and you suffer it and you take it patiently, then that's, that's praiseworthy with God. It's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. And David is definitely suffering for well-doing. He's not suffering as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer. He's not suffering as a busybody 
in other men's matters, which is very often the reason why we are suffering so many times. But no, he's suffering for righteousness. He's suffering just because he's a meek, quiet, humble believer who wants to follow the Lord and who wants to do right. And if you suffer for righteousness' sake, the Bible says, happy are ye. Happy are ye. And don't be afraid of the terror. And don't be troubled. Just be happy because you're suffering for righteousness' sake. You remember how the Savior said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're happy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Even the very prophets themselves were persecuted before you. So so that's the context. David is suffering at the hands of the wicked one. And the wicked. Now, what's the problem with the wicked? And why is it that they are so wicked? And why is it that they behave the way that they do? Why do they persecute the saints? Why do they go on in this course? Why are the ungodly so full of amnity and depravity? And why do they hate the saints? And why do they battle with God and battle with his people? Well, David tells us in verse 155. This is the reason. It's very simple. Salvation is far from the wicked. It's far from the wicked. They do not seek thy statutes. They don't know God's salvation, you see. That's the reason. They're far from God. They're far from grace. They're far from the work of the Holy Spirit. They're far from Jesus Christ. They're far from the light of the gospel. They're far from the ministry of the word of God. Salvation's far from them. And David can see it. I know it, Lord. I know why they're the way that they are. They don't know anything of your grace. They don't know anything of your salvation. They're just the tools of the devil. They're blinded in darkness. They don't know anything else. They don't seek you. They don't pray. They don't read your word. I know very well, Lord, why they behave the way they do. Salvation's far from them. And we have to remember that. Whenever you're persecuted by sinners, brethren and sisters, you have to remember that they have not been born again. They do not have the Spirit of the Lord. They haven't tasted anything of the sweetness of grace. And they're distant from Christ and they're distant from the light. And they're held in the darkness and they're held captive by the devil, the Bible says, according to his will. And you have to remember that. David remembers that. The salvation, they don't know you, Lord. This is why they persecute me. This is why they give me a hard time. They're energized by Satan. They're not energized by the Holy Spirit. We, the people of God, are different. We have the power of the Spirit in our lives. We're under the ministry of the Holy Ghost. We have the grace of God. Bless God. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. We can't boast about it, but it's true. The grace of Jesus Christ has reached us, but it hasn't reached the wicked. And that's the, the why they behave that the way 
that they do. They persecute the saints because they hate the light. They're fueled by the wicked one. And they're just his tools and his instruments to do his bidding. And David doesn't forget that. They're far from thee, Lord. They're not seekers. They don't seek thee. Verse 155, for they seek not thy statutes. You see, they, they refuse to seek God. Well, why do sinners not come in from the, from the estate here and the, the village here? Why? Because they don't seek the Lord. They're not seekers. They don't seek his statutes. They don't seek his word. The Bible's true, isn't it? There's none that seeketh God. Don't we see that every day and every week? That's the description of the wicked. They don't search out God's word. They don't search out the gospel. They don't say, oh, that's a place where the word of God is proclaimed. I have to go and hear. I have to go and seek and search. I have to go and discover if it's true. They don't have that inquiring spirit. They don't have that seeking soul that they have to have in order to come to salvation. Now, God speaks to them, it is true, through the word. He says to the proud and the hard-hearted all the time, Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted. The Lord is speaking to them. The Lord talks to them. You that are far from righteousness, the Lord says, Listen to me. But they don't listen. And they continue on stubborn and hardening their heart and rebellious. And they shut their ears and they close their soul. And they harden their heart and they wax worse and worse as they go on in life. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. All of them are saying, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways, God. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Who's the Almighty that we should serve him? Who is the Lord that we should have him in our lives? What's so special about him? That we should pray unto him. This is the way they talk you see. This is the way they think. They don't seek. They don't seek God. But they seek the saints. To persecute them. To hurt them. Because that's the only thing that will help their consciences. In the battle with the light. To persecute the the saints of the Lord. So the wicked aren't seekers. But God's people are seekers. That's a very fundamental characteristic of a Christian. A Christian is a seeker. You'll never take that away from him. He's a seeker of God. He's a seeker of the ways of God. He's a seeker of the word of God. They seek the Lord. They seek God's fellowship. They seek God's people. They seek God's righteousness. Remember how the Savior said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. And all these things shall be added on to you. So the Lord wants his people to be seekers. And he makes them seekers in his grace. I love them that love me. And those that seek me. They find me early the Lord says. But the wicked. They don't seek the Lord. And those who seek the Lord. And those who don't seek the Lord. There is this conflict. Because it's a battle against light. Against darkness. And against God. Against unrighteousness. And so this is what the midst of this battle in which David is. The fundamental character of the wicked, they don't seek God. They're not seekers. They just seek to persecute and to hurt and to harm. And that's why we should pray, brethren and sisters, that whenever we want people to come into our church, we should pray that the Lord will bring in seekers. 
That's really the only kind of people that we want. Those whose hearts God has touched to make them to come in with the spirit of seeking. Now they mightn't be saved. They mightn't have the full knowledge of the Lord. But the, the Lord is beginning to work on them. And beginning to make this spirit of inquiry. This spirit of seeking. And that's what we want. We want seekers. If they're not seekers, they're the devils too. And they'll do the devil's work in the midst of the congregation. We don't want the wicked who are far from salvation. We don't want the wicked who don't seek the Lord. We want those in whom God has commenced his work and he brings them in as seekers. And we know very well that's the only people who come in. Those who are beginning to seek, beginning to get an understanding. And so the sinners God is working in and drawing, drawing amongst us and drawing in under the gospel and giving to them a spirit of inquiry. And we should pray, Lord, raise up seekers. That's how we should pray. Bring in seekers. You see, the wicked who do not seek God or his salvation, they will only seek our destruction and our ruin. And there have been wicked who have come into churches and have come in with that intent to destroy the ministry. To destroy the testimony. To catch the minister out in some regard. And we have to guard against these things. Especially in this day of abounding immorality and gender change and all the nonsense that goes about. There's plenty of people out there who want to catch us out. And we have to be on our guard. And we have to say, Lord, hedge us about and protect us. And bring in seekers. Seekers. So that's a good prayer, people of God. To pray that the Lord would raise up seekers and bring them in amongst us. That's what the Lord would want us to have in our midst. And you remember how Saul, he was seeking God's people. You remember he was seeking them out to persecute them. He was seeking them out to bring them bound to Jerusalem and to bring them into prison. And Ananias, he even said to the Lord, Lord, I've heard so much about this man. I've heard what he's done to your saints. I've heard that his, own, his very mission is a mission of getting saints and hurting them. The Lord had to say to Ananias, but Ananias, I've changed him. Behold, he prayeth. He's seeking now. He's seeking the Savior now. He's praying to the Lord Jesus now. He's been changed. He's a seeker. And Ananias then, he got confidence and courage to be able to go amongst them. Whenever he found that he was no more wicked, but was a seeker, a true seeker of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want. We want seekers. In verse 157, David tells us of their hateful enmity against him. Because he says there, many are my persecutors and mine enemies. He's telling us of the nature of the wicked. They persecute me. They're my enemies. They oppose me because I love the Lord and because I believe the Bible. So they're setting themselves against God's servant in this tribulation that he's suffering. And as far as David is concerned, they are enemies to him, but they're enemies to him without a cause. Because you you remember how David, how he said to Jonathan about Saul, he says, what have I done? What's mine iniquity? What hurt have I brought? To Saul. What's my sin, he says, that thy father, that he seeks my life? You see, there's no cause why the wicked should be our enemies. We don't do them any harm. We love them. We want them to be saved. We do justly and rightly with them. 
We only invite them into the meetings. We don't run them down. We don't attack them. We don't assault them. We don't want to do any injury to them. We'll help them if we find them in their need. So there's not really any cause why they should hate us or why they should do this against us. Do they not see that we mean them well, that we mean them the best? And this is what David is saying about, so what have I done? What's my iniquity? What's my sin against your father that he does? He behaves like this. So there's no just cause why there are our enemies. But you see, they're wicked. That's the thing. The Lord has to work in their hearts. And that's the only thing that will change them. So the wicked persecute and are enemies unjustly to the people of God. They would drive Christians from the earth. They would, you know. And that spirit is getting stronger amongst the ungodly. To, to drive this, this spirit of righteousness, this spirit of standing up for God, this spirit that has standards of God's word, there's a spirit of wanting to drive that from the earth, to force that away. And persecution is going to get worse as wickedness abounds more and more. And as the great tribulation comes upon us, there'll be more and more of this persecution that we're going to have to face for righteousness' sake. Now, David, if he was wicked and vile, he would readily accept the hostility and the trouble of men. He would feel that he would deserve it. In fact, sometimes he prayed, Lord, if there's iniquity in my hand, if I've rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, then he says, let the enemy persecute my soul. I'd I'd, I'd deserve it then. If I'm like that, Lord, if that's the way I behave to the ungodly, then let him persecute me. But David can say, that's not the way I behave. I behave meekly. I behave in a way of righteousness and justice. I don't deserve this. But notice that they won't turn him away from following the Lord because what does he say in verse 157? Yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. The wicked won't drive him from being faithful to God. That's what they want to do. They want to get him away from the word of God. When are you Christians going to accept homosexuality? When are you Christians going to accept same-sex marriage? When are you Christians going to accept this and that? That our parliament sees as right and just. And that's what they want us to do. They want us to accept it. And they'll push and they'll shove and they'll cut and they'll hurt until we do that. But David says, yet will I not decline. I'll never go away, Lord, no matter what I have to suffer. I'll never go away from your testimonies. I'll hold fast your word unto the end. You'll notice also that David here has to say this. Did you notice the word many? Verse 157, many are my persecutors. They're not a few. He's surrounded by them. They're many. And it's interesting how often David has to say that. Many are they increased that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. Consider mine enemies, Lord, for they're many. Oh, he's telling the Lord this all the time. You know, God's people are in a minority. It's the wicked that have the many. It's the wicked that have the great democratic votes. It's the wicked that has the majority. And the God's people are just a, a, a remnant, just a handful, just a few. And sometimes they're just solitary, just single on their own. Sometimes the child of God is even outnumbered so much that he's on his own, like a little lamb to be brought to the slaughter, like our Savior himself. Wasn't he on his own? 
Wasn't he crucified between the transgressors? Wasn't he surrounded by all the wicked? And there was none of the righteous there to stand with him. He was on his own. Many, many are they that surround me, he says. Many are they that persecute me. What did the Lord say on the cross? Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. The dogs have compassed me. The whole assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They've surrounded me and enclosed me. And they pierced my hands and my feet. He's surrounded. They're the man. He's on his own. And that's the way it is, child of God. Maybe you're on your own in the workplace. Maybe you're on your own in the, in the midst of the ungodly. This is a common thing. But don't decline from the ways of the Lord. Don't give up. Now observe also that while the scene is one of conflict and one of trouble and hurt and pain, it is not one in which God's servant is abandoned by God. Now, I say he's on his own maybe, but he's not without the Lord. He has the Lord. Notice at the verse before 156, great, and it's the same word many. Many are thy tender mercies. Uh, and this word great and many, it, it begins with the letter resh. But so uh, David has plenty of enemies. He's surrounded by enemies and persecutors. But there's something else surrounds him. There's something else that is close to him. There's something else that encompasses him that is great, that is many. And what is that? It's God's tender mercies. He's surrounded by the mercies of the Lord. He's surrounded by grace, the sweetness of grace. That's a wonderful thing to surround you in the midst of all the assaults upon you because you'll become bitter. You'll become hard and cruel yourself. Unless God's tender mercies encompass you. Unless they surround you as well and shield you. And so before David says, Lord, there's plenty of persecutors all around me. Before he goes to that outer circle, he goes to the inner circle. He says, Lord, great are your mercies. They're surrounding me. They're encompassing me. They're flooding my heart with the joy and gladness of the Lord. Notice how he brings the sweet name in when he says this. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. O Lord, he says. So he's thinking about the tender mercies of God. And we should never forget about that, people of God. The Lord's forgiven your sins. The Lord's washed away all your iniquities. The Lord's given you his Holy Spirit. The Lord's given you the Bible. He's surrounded you with his grace. He's surrounded you with his love. There's nothing to make you bitter. There's nothing to make you cruel and callous like the wicked. The sweetness of grace pours into your heart and pours into your soul. And you remember how David was like that. You remember whenever he sinned against Bathsheba, or sinned with Bathsheba, as you have said, and she was just as bad as he was. But whenever he sinned in that matter and the Lord melted his heart, he began to pray for this tender mercy. Lord, these many tender mercies of you, forgive me. Blot out mine iniquities. And so he finds the mercy of God and he, he's melted by grace. And he, he, he begins to pray for transgressors and for sinners. So he, he's one who appreciates the grace and the mercy of God. And it surrounds him. 
He feels the embrace of his Redeemer. And so bitterness doesn't get into his heart. And we have to guard against bitterness, people of God. And the only thing that keep, keep us from bitterness is, is, is the thankful remembrance that we have a sweet and wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ that the wicked don't have. They don't have him, you see. That's why they hurt you. They don't have grace and mercy. But you have. You have. And it should ever melt us. The love of Christ should ever constrain us. So, brethren and sisters, never forget that God's grace and mercy is sufficient for you in all your trials. He who has forgiven your sins, he will not leave you on your own abandoned to, to the wickedness of man. And so there is this appreciation of grace. Now notice also that God's grace, while it has melted him and driven away any vengeful or bitter spirit, that, that is clear also from verse 158, because he says, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Whenever he looks at these transgressors who are hurting him, does he say, I, I hate them? I beheld the transgressors and I hated them. I beheld the transgressors and I wish God would pour out his wrath on them and destroy them. Is that how he prays? These hurtful sinners, these hurtful enemies, these hurtful transgressors and persecutors. Oh, I beheld them and I just desired the judgment of God to fall on them. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. He says, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved. I was grieved in my soul. I was just sad in my spirit. Yes, he, he loathed their wickedness. He was grieved at their sin. That is true. Uh, he's sad of, at their iniquity. He feels like the Lord feels. Remember never God's people 40 years? What, what did they do to God for 40 years? They grieved him. Now, he didn't destroy them in day one. He didn't destroy them in day two. 40 years. 40 years of grief before the judgment before cutting them all off. God's not quick to wrath. And God's people shouldn't be quick to wrath either. We should be grieved. Grieved from day one. But we don't have to be quick to wrath from day one. We desire mercy. We grieve and we loathe the sin and the wickedness, but we desire mercy. So he's not complacent with sin, that's for sure. But he doesn't take it personal. He doesn't feel that the injury is so much to him as to God. It's an injury against God and he's grieved. Not because of the hurt that he's suffering, but he's grieved because of the hurt that the Lord is suffering. Because of the wickedness. This is a good way to think. This is a good way to feel. I beheld the transgressors and grieved. This word beheld, it makes me think of the Lord Jesus. He beheld the sin. What's that city going to do to him? They're going to nail him to the tree. They're going to offer him up to the Romans. They're going to crucify him. He beheld the city. How much great. What does the Bible say? He beheld the city and wept over it. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 119. That's what he did. This is how he responded. I beheld and I was grieved and I wept. He wept over the city. For its wickedness. He wept over the city for the destruction that's going to come upon it. 
in the Roman occupation in AD 70, a generation or so later, he beheld the city and wept over it. Because there's this grace and mercy surrounding him. He beheld his crucifiers, and what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He grieved, and yet he prayed for transgressors. Didn't the Bible say he made intercession for the transgressors? We're talking about the wicked today. We're talking about the transgressors. David's talking about the transgressors. Verse 158, I beheld the transgressors. And the Bible says Jesus made intercession for the transgressors. Remember how we saw earlier on, horror have taken hold of me because of the wicked that keep not your law. And then he says, rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Grief and horror. This is how he feels. He sees a horrible place to which the wicked are going. He sees the horrible, fearful, terrible wrath of God abiding on them about to descend upon them. And he's grieved. And he weeps rivers of water. And he prays for the transgressors. And he intercedes for them. Remember Psalm 51. He's asked for mercy, Lord, I've sinned, committed adultery, Lord, forgiven pardon my iniquities, and restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then in the next breath, what does he say? Then I'll teach transgressors. I want other transgressors to be like me, Lord, to come to know you. I want other transgressors to know your way, and I'll teach them in order to that. And only you, Lord, to make them to change and to repent. But it's my desire, and it's what I want to do. And so he, he wants conversion, not damnation. And conversion is our desire, even for the wicked, even for those who persecute us. We are to be filled with love, even for our persecutors. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has said that. Love your enemies. Pray for them that persecute you and despitefully use you. Bless them that curse you. And do good to them that hate you. Now the time is gone, and I just want to get through the whole section, but I just, just in passing, I just want to point this out. Do you see how often David prays for something in this room? He prays for it several times. This room where he's persecuted, where he's asked the Lord to plead his cause, where he's surrounded by enemies who are doing him harm and hurt. There's something he particularly asks the Lord to do to him. You have it there in 154. Quicken me according to your word. 156. O Lord, quicken me. According to thy judgments. 159. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Do you know that persecuting times are revival times? Persecuting times when you're getting it tough and when the church is getting it rough and when it nearly looks like it's about to be blotted out, those can be revival. Because God's people pray. And one of the things that they pray is for quickening. Lord, don't let me be barren and dry and dead and lifeless in the midst of this persecution and assault of hell. But Lord, send me revival. Send me quickening. Stir me up. And so that's a very good prayer 
If you're getting it tough at the hands of the wicked, don't let Satan deaden you. Don't let Satan deaden your soul, child of God, at the hands of the wicked. But rather say, Lord, quicken me. Make me to be more alive than I've ever been before for thee. So that's a good prayer if you're getting it rough at the hands of, this, of the wicked one. 